You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. The title of our sermon tonight is God of the Afflicted. God of the Afflicted. Throughout history, there were times of success, enlightenment, and prosperity, and then there were times of trouble, fear, and drought. I don't think it is an exaggeration for us to admit that we are not living in a time of prosperity or blessing. And the sharpest edge of this realization is that there is a warped view of reality and morality in our culture. The Bible in Romans chapter 1 says that God passively reveals his wrath towards sinners when he lets them do what they want to do. One of the darkest books in the Bible, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, has an underlying message about the cause of those evil acts mentioned in that book. And it was that everyone in those days did what was right in their own eyes. Like then, today, here, everyone has their own moral compass to do what is right in their own eyes. To press this further, we live in a time where there is a constant onslaught on the Christian faith and that hatred being celebrated by the pagan world. But we also know, as per the scriptures, that persecution from the world on Christians should not be surprising, and that in the end, we will overcome and the gates of hell will not prevail. As the body of Christ, we are marching forward with the gospel of reconciliation, not with a sword, but with the proclamation of God's good news to sinners. And as we proclaim this message of the cross of Jesus, we are letting the ones who listen know that Christ won. Satan, the accuser, has been defeated and that all are called to belong in the family of God, who reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ and no other. As Christians, we have that confidence when we face persecution and affliction from the world and from Satan. But what if the affliction in our life is not just because of the unbelieving world? What if the affliction in our life is a consequence of our sinful choices? Now, I am not saying that all our problems are because of the various sins we have committed. We see a clear example of this truth in John chapter 9 when Jesus answers his disciples' questions about why a certain man was born blind by saying that it was the power of God to be revealed in his healing and nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. At the same time, common sense, we also know that if we willingly drive recklessly on the highway, we could get a ticket or worse, cause an accident. That will hurt us and others. So this morning, we're going to see from Scripture how God is for us, His people, His children, His servants, even when we are the cause of our own affliction. He is the God of the afflicted, even when we may be the reason for our troubles. This psalm that we're looking at is a psalm of David who had his fair share of problems, not just because of the world being against him, but also because of himself, his own sin. We need to admit that we too 
have problems, have afflictions that are not merely a result of what's happening out there, but of what's happening in here. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, as per the Bible. Yet, he still miserably failed before God, especially when he sinned by taking Bathsheba and covertly killing her husband. In a sense, God, who could have restrained David from committing such murderous, adulterous acts, allowed him to go through with it. God allowed David to do what was right in David's own eyes. This is something that I can relate with, and I'm sure many of us can. You can see the time in your past when God allowed you to do what you wanted to do. All the poor, immoral actions done, words spoken and thoughts conceived. But the psalm, this prayer by David, isn't for us to wallow in our sin and pity ourselves about our past, but rather it is to uplift us and give us hope in the Lord that When we see the sin in our life, and more specifically, when we realize that certain afflictions that are caused by our own sin, my goal is to show you three themes we can observe to help us deal with such afflictions. My desire is for you to leave from here confident in God being there for you and with you even when you were the cause of your own demise. With that said, here's the first theme that we can observe from David's prayer. Our sin can cause affliction. Our sin can cause affliction. Sin isn't merely an abstract or metaphysical idea, but a real conscious declaration of one's insubordination to the lordship of Jesus Christ through action or inaction, through disobedience or lack of obedience. So, lying, for example, isn't merely bad because society or culture or your parents deems it as such, but rather, as per the scriptures, it is a defiant act against the holiness of God, who is infinitely true and all about the truth. It is a defiant act against the nature of our good Father, who knows what is the best way to live and prosper as human beings, lying not being one of them. And unfortunately, the Bible says that people reject the God of the Bible because people love to sin. And the acts of sin are evidence for this biblical claim. John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the Apostle John talking about Jesus as the light. And he says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This verse is in context of the people around Jesus at that time, but it is no less true in application about our time. And sin can manifest itself in many ways. People are always innovating on ways to sin, but the underlying kinds of sin are all the same since the very beginning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Now the works of the flesh, so the word flesh in Scripture is often related to our natural sinful disposition towards things that are against God's revealed or prescriptive will for us. So it's not talking about the human body, it's talking about our natural sinful inclination. So the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, and this is Jesus speaking. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So sin is not just something that people do, okay? It's not just something that people do, but something people love to do. Some love some kinds of sin, and others love other kinds of sin. Some love themselves too much and become prideful, while others love to gossip and slander. Some kinds of sin are worse than other kinds of sin. Murdering someone is worse than lying to your family. But all sin is by nature evil or sinful. And regardless of the sin people coddle with, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. People have missed the mark of God's standard of perfect obedience that will yield perfect flourishing of the human life to the glory of God. And this sinful way of life, this sinful lifestyle has an end too. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and this is what James says. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The finality of sin is when God actively, not passively, actively now pours out his wrath on unrepentant sinners by throwing them into the lake of fire, as it says in the book of Revelation, where the lost, the unrepentant sinner, will eternally and consciously bear the wrath of an infinitely holy God who infinitely hates all that is evil or sinful. Now, another truth about sin is that sin can lead to a kind of consequence that is not just a physical death that we are all aware of or even the final judgment. A type of consequence that happens when we're still alive here on earth. Adam and Eve, for example, when they sinned, they did eventually physically die. But before that, they were cursed by God and banished from the presence of God. They were banished from his presence. That's a real consequence. Similarly with David now, when he sinned against God by taking Bathsheba and murdering her husband, God then took the life of their child. Now again, to be clear. This does not mean that the reason people lose a child is because of a particular sin or even infidelity in their marriage. That passage is not saying any of that for all people, but it is instead describing to us that in David's case, in David's life, it was a consequence of his sin. And if you keep reading David's story, you will see his family become Worse, even more broken with his other sons acting wickedly and finally being killed. The narrative is painfully obvious that ever since David sinned, 
by taking Bathsheba and killing her husband, things are not okay at home and cause a lot of problems and afflictions for him. I would suggest this can happen to any of us Christians as well. I have my share of skeletons that I regret having in my closet. And I'm sure many of us have these too. Sinning in marriage, for example, will lead to the downfall of that marriage. Sinning in your conversations can lead to the death of friendships. Sinning on your exams can lead you to be a fraud. Remember, God's commandments in Scripture are not arbitrary rules to make Him happy. No, rather they are principles and precepts, commandments that enable people to live the best way possible in a fallen world because God, as the Father of all creation in one sense, knows what is best for all of His creation, especially for people. And these precepts, these commandments, these laws proceed from who God is, His nature. For example... God created people in His image. That's why every person from conception has value and worth, because they're made in the image of God. And that is why it is evil to unjustly kill another person in the image of God. The point here is this, dear ones. When we sin, when we choose to do things outside of God's parameters of a successful and prosperous human life in this fallen world, when we choose to do what we think is right and not submit to what God thinks is right in His Word, we can cause affliction, consequences to ourselves, to those whom we love, and even to the next generation long after we are gone. Because, again... I want to emphasize there are real consequences to the sinful choices we make. David, in verse 2 of our main passage, he says that he does not want to be put to shame by his enemies, who are most often accusing him because of his sinful failures. In verse 11, he shares about how much guilt he has over his sin. And then in verse 16, he shares about his loneliness because of his sin. These are things that happen to a man or a woman who falls short of God's glory and sins against him. This, David, is a man who is afflicted by his past, affected by his sin. Ask yourself, how do you feel and think about your sin? Is there a sense of guilt shame or loneliness or any kind of remorse? Or are you numb, desensitized to sin in your heart and in your mind? Ask the Spirit of Christ now to reveal to you the area of life where sin has control over you, where you've given yourself over to that type of sin and no longer feel the need of forgiveness. As C.S. Lewis once said, we can ignore even pleasure, this is a famous one, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When you go through the valleys of life, do you take a moment to ask God if the reason you are in the valley is because you took the wrong path? 
Is your unfavorable situation or trial a consequence of your sins? Is there any undetected sin in your life the Lord is trying to show you in your affliction? It is worth noting right now that if you do not feel the urgency of wanting to know the undetected sin in your life, or you do not feel the need to hate your sin, or you do not look at your sinful past life in increasing disgust, then my friend, you are on the path of death, where you will die doing what you love to do. You will die a sinner because you love to sin. And even at judgment, you are not going to have a sudden change of heart that you didn't have now. You will gnash your teeth in hatred towards God who throws you into the fire because you know that God hates what you love. But to those who do feel the urgency of wanting to hate their sin, to look at their sinful life, their past sinful life in disgust, then my brother and sister, you are on the path of salvation where you will die doing what you love. And what you love to do is obey God because you love Him. And because you love God, you hate your sin. And so with that mindset and that hard resolve about how to think about the sin in our lives that can cause real afflictions, real problems, here's the second theme that we can observe from David's prayer in such kinds of affliction. We can turn to God for hope. We can turn to God for hope. David, though he sinned and was dealing with the consequences of his heinous sin, he was still a man after God's own heart. How? He trusted in God's character. He trusted in God's character. In verse 6, he prays, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. He was appealing to God's mercy because he knew that if he asks for God to remember his mercy, then he can ask in verse 7 to not remember his sins from his youth. This is amazing. We read this earlier today, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God began his revelation to Moses, the prophet Moses, by saying that he was merciful and slow to anger. Dear ones, God is slow to anger towards you. God is slow to anger towards you. He sees the skeletons in your closet right now and is still merciful towards you. Sin, nor the afflictions caused by your sin, will have the final say in your life if God is merciful. And because He is and you ask for His mercy, sin will not be your legacy. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Now the law, the Ten Commandments and the law that proceeds out of it, now the law came in to increase the trespass, to make known to all of us, this is right and this is wrong, and shows how we are not right a lot of the times. So the law came in to increase the trespass, trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what have you done, dear ones, that is unbearable to look at? What makes you feel so guilty of your past? Church, God sees it and is speaking to us from His Word that His grace is still much more than the sins of your past, than the consequences of your choices. God's grace is that great. There is no sin, no evil, and I literally mean nothing that can outdo the grace of God. This should bring us hope for our lives, brothers and sisters. You can have a free conscience to live for God and others, knowing that the grace and mercy of God are the only reasons why you're still around despite your past. You have a bright future with Jesus, and you do not have to worry about facing the wrath of God. Your legacy will be Christ. In verse 8 of our main passage, David also spoke of the goodness of God and how upright he is. There's not a taint of evil or malice in God. He's a benevolent God and a righteous God. This means that God cannot tolerate sin, yet somehow, because of his goodness, he leads sinners in the path of righteousness. We'll touch on how this works in a moment, but the emphasis I want you to see now is this. You should trust in the goodness of God more than you can feel the weight of your sin because His mercy is more. Psalm 34 verse 8 says it like this. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 says it like this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge refuge in him. God is good. God is good, especially to those who take refuge in him. And in verse 10 of our main passage, David speaks of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God and for all those who keep his covenant. Church, God's covenantal, redeeming love and faithfulness does not change nor diminish when you are afflicted by your own sin. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is Paul speaking. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, by keeping all of the commandments, but because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Dear ones, you are justified before God. You are in right standing before God. You are declared to be perfect before God. Not because of how good you have kept all these commandments, which are, by the way, a beautiful blessing for us, but because 
that it is not about being perfect, but about whom you put your faith in. The Christian belief is that no one can be in good standing before God because of their good works, and God's requirements is that you need to be perfectly good. The only way is for a substitute who is perfect to stand before God, the judge, on behalf of us sinners. This is a judicial understanding that when God judges sinners, he will either pour out his wrath on the sinner or has already poured out his wrath on Jesus, who is the perfect substitute for those who trust in him throughout history. Please hear this, especially my friend who believes they are a good person, worthy of a positive outlook for the afterlife. The God of the Bible says that you are not deserving of heaven. You're not deserving of a good afterlife because you willingly disobeyed God by loving what he hates, sin. But, but, if you put your trust in Jesus who lived the perfect, obedient, righteous, godly life that you should have lived, and then died on the cross to experience and satisfy the wrath of God that you deserve in hell, then God, the judge, will look at you judicially or positionally as a person who has his debt, his punishment taken care of at the cross, and further, this is spectacular, has Jesus' perfect life to account for what you do deserve. This is what theologians call double imputation. My unworthy, sinful life is imputed to Christ, and Christ's perfect, holy life is imputed to me. And because of this twofold spiritual transaction, God the judge punishes Jesus for my sin at the cross and blesses me instead for Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus, by the way, did this voluntarily for me and for all of us who put our faith in him. The call for you right now, my friend, is to put your faith in this substitute, in this Jesus. It is for you to recognize that God is holy and no sinner will go unpunished. And as a sinner, you are deserving of God's holy wrath. So turn to God for hope, like David did for his own sin. Trust in the person of Jesus, whose life will be your life and whose death will be your death. Please hear me. Either you will account for your sin or Jesus will have accounted for your sin at the cross. But whichever happens, God will make sure that your sin, and by extension all of our sins, will be accounted for because God is holy and just. Every other faith and religion or practice will tell you to do something good or earn your way up to God or heaven or some enlightened state of contentment and happiness. But only the Christian faith says that you cannot, you really cannot do this on your own. And Jesus is the only one who can do that on your behalf. And that true contentment and happiness is found in God alone. So, repent. Repent, my friend. Change your mind about your life and turn to faith in Christ and trust Him to save you from your own sin. Brothers and sisters, church, ask yourselves, what past sin in your life or even ongoing struggle with sin makes you feel unworthy to approach God for hope? How are you dealing with your sin? 
Do you have hope in God's mercy or do you find your sin to be a giant that God cannot slay? Do you meditate on the character of God when you are in the valley? Do you pray to God asking for Him to remember His mercy during your time of weakness? Do you ever feel like God loves you less because you don't do enough good things for God? Church, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God towards you is not, and I repeat, is not dependent on how well you perform. It is purely based on the performance of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that means, in application, no matter what, God's covenantal, redeeming love does not change day to day for you. Remember, every time you find yourself in a season where you think that your sin was the cause of this affliction, turn to God for hope because He is merciful, He is good, He is upright, He is loving, and He is faithful. God will never love us less at our worst because He has always loved us with His best, and His best is Jesus. The third and final theme we can observe in our passage today is this. When we see that our sin can cause affliction in our life, and then we turn to God for hope, then God will take care of His people. Then God will take care of His people. You'll notice different ways David in this psalm sees on how God shows His care, but I want to highlight just three of them. First, in verses 8 and 12, David knew that God instructs sinners who fear Him in the way of the Lord. Remember at the start we saw that when people do what they want to do and how they want to live their life, it is an expression of their sin. But like David, we can approach God to actually give us the instruction on how to live. The Bible is full of principles and commandments on how to flourish in life to the glory of God. So let's ask ourselves, how often do we meditate on the precepts to do our jobs well? Or take care of our families? Or steward our finances? Or how we vote? If we follow, dear ones, the instructions of God found in the Bible, our lifestyle will have lesser and lesser and lesser sin and more and more and more of Jesus. God's take, God takes care of His people by instructing them in the way of the Lord. Secondly, in verses 5 and 9, David knew that God leads those who are humble in what is true and right. James chapter 4 verse 6 says this, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore it says, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. John chapter 6 verses 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. God gives grace to the humble, and this grace is experienced when the Spirit of God guides the humble into all the truth found in the Scriptures. The lie of the enemy will always be that your past, your sin, your ongoing struggles with sin is what defines you as a person. And that is your legacy. And there is really no hope for you. 
But God will lead His people, those who are humble, by having His Spirit remind us from His Word, His truth, that we are now a new creation in Christ, and what defines us as a person is our new identity in Christ. While the enemy will do his job, continuing to accuse you of your affliction and choices like the enemies David had to deal with, God will remind you of the truth that you now have an advocate whose name is Jesus. Therefore, you can live in freedom from your past, from your sin, from your guilt, and live to the glory of God. And the third thing I want to show is in verse 14, David knows that God is a friend to those who fear him and makes known to them his covenant. This is crucial. Again, God is holy. We are sinners. God cannot be friends with sinners because sinners love what God hates. And God loves what sinners hate. But I want to show you a beautiful connection to the consistent testimony of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. This should be very famous for all of us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So hold that thought. Okay, hold that thought. Now turn your Bibles to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. And this is Paul speaking. But we... Christians, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Keep holding that thought and turn your attention again to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And this is Paul speaking again. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we Christians are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, the him here being Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Pulling all of these scripture portions together, this is what it is saying. The book of Proverbs says that if you fear God, the holiness of God, then that is the very beginning of wisdom and insight you can have, right? But this wisdom and insight isn't simply a practical idea or step. As for Paul, it is, as for Paul, the very person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full revelation of the wisdom and insight of God. Wisdom is a person. And what is this revelation? In Jesus, in this wisdom, God was reconciling all of us. To himself. In other words, in Jesus, a holy God, watch this, was becoming a friend of sinners. And that reconciliation was accomplished where? At the cross. That's why we Christians preach Christ 
crucified and implore on behalf of Jesus that everyone should be what? Reconciled to God. Be friends with God through Jesus. No one has to continue to be an enemy of God and face those consequences. Rather, everyone can now become friends with a holy God if they repent from their sin and believe in Jesus. That is the central message of the Bible. You see, David in our main passage knew that God instructs sinners in the way, leads the humble in the truth, and becomes friends with those who fear Him, bringing them life and not death. In the New Testament, Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 6, reveals the full breadth of this reality by saying that He is the very way that God instructs sinners. He is the very truth that God leads the humble with. And He is the very life that makes sinners become friends with God. So brothers and sisters, let me conclude right here and say this. Our God is the God of the afflicted. Like David, we must first recognize that our sin can cause affliction in our life. Secondly, like David, we can and should turn to God for hope by trusting that He is a merciful, benevolent, just, loving, and faithful God. And finally, like David, we can be confident that God will take care of His people by instructing us, His people, in the way, leading us in the truth, and reminding us of His friendship and covenant that gives us life. God will take care of us because Jesus is the very power and wisdom of God for those who are called by God. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life, even in the afflictions that were caused by your own sin. May God, in our time of affliction, show us His mercy, fill our hearts with comfort, and give us strength to fight against our flesh, and bring us confidence that our legacy will not be determined by our past sinful choices, but only the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this psalm of David, that we could read and hear what you have to say to us. God, we bless you for having your Spirit illuminate our hearts to grasp your truth. Lord, we are weak without your strength. So will you fill us with your spirit today to walk victoriously against sin and for you and leave a Christ-centered legacy? God, we praise you that you did not leave us in our sin, but you showed compassion towards us and sent your son Jesus to be the way, truth, and life for us. Help us to discern our own hearts and see where we fall short of obedience to you. Oh God in heaven, help us to help each other grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
protecting each other from falling into sin. Lord, for those of us who are in a season of discomfort and trial, will you help us to see if any previous sin has caused this affliction? And if so, will you help us to find refuge in you? Oh, Father, we need you. Oh, God, hear our prayer. Show us your mercy and kindness. We confess our sins before you and we approach boldly to the throne of grace and plead for mercy, not on our account, but only on the account of your son, Jesus, that you have accounted towards, imputed towards us. Lord, clear our conscience and purify our hearts now. God, we thank you that even though you are invisible to the naked eye, you're still very near to us. God, be with us now. We ask these things in your son's name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.